Word nerd. Wordsmith. Wordy. Wordless. Oxford Dictionary says a word is a single, distinct, meaningful element of speech or writing, used with others or sometimes alone. We say each one matters. No extra words is literature, minimalist style. And we're getting you right to the story. Undercard by David Whitman The bell rang. I trudged back to my corner, slumped on the stool, and wished I had trained harder. From a few feet away, I could hear the voice of Jim Fletcher, a drinking buddy of mine. Jim was at ringside as a sports reporter for the local radio station. And if you've just tuned in, fight fans, the cruiserweight clash between Paul Owen and Jimmy Chandler has one round to go. These guys may have been around a long time, but what a contest they've given us tonight. By my reckoning, Paul is trailing on points, and he needs a big, big finish. I guess the crowd will be right behind him, as he's the local boy, born and bred in this great city of ours. One thing's certain, the last round will be as thrilling as the other nine. Maybe he'd been watching a different fight. Good old Jim. He was wasted as a sports correspondent. He should have written poetry. Or war propaganda. As we wait for the last crucial three minutes, I'm joined at ringside by Buddy Salini, that fine middleweight of the 80s, a man who's been in the ring with the very best. Great to have you with us, Buddy. How do you see the scoring so far? But Jim was only telling half of it. Yes, Buddy had been with the best, first as a trial horse, then a walking punch bag, and his face and mind were witnesses. A doctor told me once that an old, punchy fighter will sometimes try to disguise the damage by using words of three or four syllables in an attempt to sound eloquent. The trouble was that a limited vocabulary led to one such word being overused. From somewhere, Buddy had gleaned the word, basically. Uh, well, Glenn, yeah, I mean, Jim, basically, uh, I see Chandler ahead right now, but basically one punch from Evans could turn the whole, uh, fight basically around... Oh yeah, it's Owen. I was almost pleased when the bell rang. If I didn't want to tell the truth, I could make things a whole lot more exciting. I could tell you that as I moved out to the center of the ring, I caught sight of my beautiful but loyal wife in the crowd with our beautiful but sick child on her lap, that in the final round I took enough punishment to kill a platoon of marines and was down for a count of nine but recovered to knock Chandler out, that in the seconds before I was mobbed by a hysterically cheering crowd, I hugged my wife and said I did it all for you, honey, and the kid. Bull, of course. My son wants nothing to do with me, and if my ex-wife was in the crowd, she'd have been wanting me to get my lights punched out. Chandler and I had just about enough left to throw a few jabs and lean on each other. That left the formality of the scorecards being read and his hand raised. Like most of my fights, it had been untidy and unexciting. I wasn't worried. I always say if you want excitement and neat endings, watch wrestling. My usual post-fight resolve to live right and train right was, again as usual, fading. I walked the couple of blocks from the arena to Freddy's place, which is where I do most of my drinking. As regards the decor, it has much in common with the city's sports hall, but I like the atmosphere. It's kind of neutral ground where businessmen, students, artists, blue-collar workers, and pretty well anyone else can drink and coexist. Freddy himself was working the bar. Hey, here comes the town's answer to Dempsey. I was disappointed, Paul. I wanted you to land the big punch in the last round. I grinned. I did, but somebody should have told Chandler. He didn't feel it. Wish I could say the same when he hit me. 
Well, at least you get all the money for the pain. Smart move of yours, managing yourself. I shrugged. What would a manager do except set me up for some golden boy to knock over? Freddy put a beer in front of me without being asked. Drink up. At least you're a cruiserweight. You don't have to watch the calories. That's its trouble, said Jacko, another regular. He was in business. He owned a landscape gardening firm. Between fights, I sometimes did laboring work for him. See, Paul here is too big to be a light heavy, but too small to take on the real big guys. It's a shame, kid. Nature made you exactly the wrong size. What's with this too small, asked someone else. I knew him vaguely. I'd seen him in there before, but I couldn't recall his name. You never stop Marciano. A vastly overrated boxer, yelled someone else from the direction of the pool table. And the old, endless discussion started up again. The hypothetical fights between men of different eras and styles. The old controversies. Tunney's long count. Did Johnson take a dive in Havana? It flowed over me as I sank the beers. Come on, Paul. I realized Freddy was talking to me. You're the expert. Let's have your opinion. Eh, sorry. I wasn't listening. The greatest heavyweight of all time. The best ever. Who'd get your vote? Of course. All barroom boxing conversations ended with this question. Me, of course. Hey, yeah, but seriously. Let's have your choice. Okay, then. I'd have to pick... A blank. I see the face. I know who he is. But the name has disappeared, as if wiped from a slate in my head. Yeah, Paul, make up your mind. The guy. The guy who beat Braddock. And that German. He beat that German in one round. You mean Joe Lewis? Well, just say so. Lewis, of course. What's in this beer? The bar closed an hour later. We spilled onto the pavement. The conversation's rambling by now. The friendly arguments unresolved. I began to walk the three blocks to the brownstone building where I rented a room. The best ever. You might as well talk about religion. People believe what they wanted. Sullivan, Dempsey, Ali, Marciano, and Lewis, of course. I said his name again as if afraid it might not be there. Any of them, the greatest, but not me. I thought of that poster. The night and the alcohol made it seem like a graven image. Paul Owen could never have been a contender. Welcome to No Extra Words, the Flash Fiction Podcast. My name is Chris Baker-Dirsch. I'm your producer and editor. Episode 75. How did that happen? Suddenly we've been doing this for... It's coming fast on two years, guys. And 75 episodes plus 11 specials. Thank you to those of us who came along for the ride of our Twitter special released late in the evening of February 10th when we hit a thousand Twitter followers. That was a lot of fun. Today's episode... So I mentioned this earlier, because we had an unexpected hiatus at the end of December, beginning of January, it was sort of like all of the stories that I had previously accepted for publication that were scheduled for those episodes kind of got thrown into the air and I got to remix them and reshift them and rethink about how they fit together. Because that's really what this is. This podcast experiment for me is a grand puzzle in which people send me fantastic stories and I get to move them around and see which ones match up together to make episodes. Super fun job that I have. But I was looking again, and neither of these stories are where they originally were thought to be. But as I was doing that process, I was listening one day as I'm driving my car to our local 
NPR station. I live just outside of Seattle, so the local NPR station in Seattle. And they were having a show they do where they have people get on and talk about the, you know, people from the area get on and talk about the week's news and all that jazz. And I always tune in because every now and then I hear Sherman Alexi, and that's fun because this is Seattle, right? I couldn't tell you for the life of me who the people were that were on that day, but the subject was, what do you think the country has most to work on over the next year? It's the beginning of 2017 kind of a thing. And of course, we live in the times we do, and everybody had definite opinions on this. And the woman who was on the panel said toxic masculinity. She thinks that the root of a lot of the problems we are facing in America today has to do with a culture of toxic masculinity. And that stuck in my brain. And I kept thinking about it. And I kept thinking about even setting the toxic aside for a minute, what does masculinity mean in 2017? You know, what does that word mean? And how are we dealing with the concept of masculinity? And as somebody who is a cisgender, straight, white woman married to a man who oftentimes is a better feminist than I am, and a mom raising a little boy, that concept of masculinity is an interesting one for me to grapple with. And as I've been putting this episode together, a lot of things have happened. The Boy Scouts have opened their door to transgender boys, something they've been under pressure to do for a long time and something I am a huge fan of. It's also caused a rekindling of the debate about letting girls into the Boy Scouts, which I have a harder time with because I'm a lifelong Girl Scout who's really defensive of the Girl Scouts program and am afraid of losing that if things change. But then I wonder, am I just afraid of things changing? You know, where do these single gender clubs and organizations get to in this world that we're sort of moving post-gender? And... My other podcast that I host, which is coming off hiatus this week, is a women's baseball podcast, and we ask some of the same questions, because there's a debate there, too, about what is better for the future of women in baseball. Is it promoting women's baseball teams and women's baseball leagues, or is it promoting taking the wall down that really keeps little girls and women out of baseball? It's it's a complicated world we live in, and I think it's it's difficult to be a man and I don't want to go all poor men because that's stupid frankly and this is not a men's rights conversation or anything else but I think we are all men and women and people who don't fall into either one of those categories rethinking what it means to be a man and a woman and I realize the irony of me being a woman putting together an episode on masculinity I totally and completely get that it's sort of like all of the criticism most of it justifiable, I think, that politicians get for being a bunch of straight white men who get to decide what women can and can't do with their bodies. Um, but I am who I am, and this show is what it is, and so I took a swing at it. I took a swing at examining masculinity on this episode, and it was an interesting creative challenge for me. One of my favorite podcasts that I listen to is called How to Be a Girl. And you can get it. I am not getting a dime for promoting it. I just happen to like it. Marlo Mack is an independent producer. And you can get it anywhere you get podcasts. It's on iTunes and, and all those places. And it is a mom who is raising a, I think she's now eight or maybe nine-year-old transgender daughter. And 
this is the mom's real to life true story diary about what that experience is like day to day being a single mom raising her daughter and one of the things she says in an early episode is i love my daughter i love my daughter so much but sometimes i look at pictures of my little boy and i miss him which is strange because he's still here but he's not and so i think all of those conversations around gender are really important ones to have and it's okay to be uncomfortable and it's okay to move forward in an uncomfortable space as long as we acknowledge that discomfort and don't have it turn into hostility. It's just my opinion. One podcaster behind a mic. And so you start with the hyper-masculine world of boxing. There are definitely women boxers. Like I say, I run a women's baseball podcast. I'm all for women in sports. But I think you could say the world of boxing is a pretty masculine space. And I like what this story has to say about, you know, what people go through for these sports that are heavily masculine, like boxing, like football. It's a literal sacrifice of not just your body, but your brain and what it means to be a man in that world. It's just, it's a great story. And we're going to close with a story concept that, blew me away because I had never heard of this. Justin Fennick's story, first a woman, then a man, deals with the life of the Gueva Doce, which is an actual group of young men who live in Salinas, Dominican Republic. I'll put some information from the BBC and um, other news sources about them in the show notes. This is not fiction. These men are real. And for reasons of genetics and hormones, they grow a penis and male genitalia when they hit puberty. And so Gueva Doce means penis at 12. And this is an actual thing. And so this is Justin's fictionalized story about what it's like to be one of these young women becoming a young man, which it's utterly fascinating. And it was a great, great way to end this episode. In the middle, we are going back by popular demand to a segment we introduced in the last episode, which I'm calling dun 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 Writing Spaces, where we asked writers to share with us, we asked former No Extra Words contributors to share with us where they write and to give us a little bit of audio on what their writing space looks like. And today we're featuring Corey Wallace and TJ Peters, and I'm not going to spoil it by telling you what is ahead, except that I think... I really appreciate the authenticity of some of those, you know, some of the writers had writing spaces I was super jealous of and were beautiful and had cool knickknacks and various things. And some of it was very much, this is the corner of the world in which I am writing today because it is the corner of the world that I have to write in. So Corey and TJ, thank you very much for sharing with us your writing spaces. If you would like to see Corey and TJ's writing spaces, you can view those at noextrawords.wordpress.com or there are links right there in the show notes inside whatever podcast app you're listening to if you want to get a visual of the space they are talking about. That is coming next. We are going to close with first a woman, then a man. And I will see you in March. Time flies, you guys. I will see you in March with a very special new segment coming on the next episode of No Extra Words. I will see you then. Cluttered. 
In fact, after I took the photograph, I realized I needed to strip the bed, wash the sheets. Pillows scattered about on a gray-black institutional desk, coffee cups, medications, and two crates on the floor, socking caps, work socks, books, and more books, and more books. Books stacked upon the desk. Poetry books, novels, philosophy books, books on Christianity, essays. There's a white hat. A white hat I bought to wear on the docks that I work at FedEx. A hat that turned out not to be a good choice. A reading lamp. A box of Theraflu. Two pictures of two of my nephews. A plastic Batman cup. Batman slippers. Captain America slippers. Notebooks. Notebooks with writings. Unfinished novels. Flash fiction. Poems and more poems. This is an $84 a week room. This is a place where men who suffer from addiction come to try to find themselves, come to try to to live together in a community where we support one another to do something different. I came here on my own terms, not court-ordered, not because I'm on paper. I came here because I was given the opportunity, and I took the opportunity. It is here where I write. At night, in the morning I read, and I prepare for work. It is here where I sleep. It is here where I dream. It is here where I find gratitude. On the crates hang two rags. One stained black from shoe polish. Polish I use to shine my boots, my black boots, my Doc Martens that I wear to FedEx. There's a pamphlet, an AA pamphlet, with a list of meetings, meetings that I attend on a weekly basis. If you'd like to reach me, you can reach me by email, stoutbear2 at gmail.com, S-T-O-U-T-B-E-A-R, the number two, at gmail.com. Thank you. This is a trash room. Well, it was a storage room. It still is, but there are new things in it now. My roommates and I were renters, and when we moved into this home, the uh, this room that I now work in was filled with junk. The uh, previous renters were apparent artists or builders of some kind, so it was, it was packed to the gills with... Um, scrap wood and unfinished projects and canvases with splattered paint on them and old appliances that perhaps were going to be used for something creative instead of functional. And so over the course of several months, we emptied this space out uh, to convert it into a usable workspace, which 
now includes uh, multiple desk setups, uh, including an editing suite for a video editor who lives here and a sound recording booth, which I'm ironically not using um, for the person who works in sound recording, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are some issues that pop up from time to time when you are treating a storage space as a workspace. For example, the walls themselves are actually the foundation of the house, and that foundation is crumbling of sorts um, to the point where when heavy rainwater comes, it actually seeps in through the walls. Groundwater actually leaks into the room, and so we have to set up an intricate series of fans and towels and so forth to uh, make sure our various electronic appliances don't uh, fry us while we try to work. Um, the desk that I sit at was left behind. Um, I slightly refinished it or at least put legs back on to try to make it more stable. And most things in this room uh, are repurposed uh, from the junk that it was previously. So I sit at the doorway with couches and tables and televisions and all of the rumpus that we've made this room and uh every day writing whether poetry or prose or scripts i live in this room and and i'm trying to put my finger on it but i still haven't quite decided what the oh metaphor ironic parable or whatever it is that uh I, I do my, my best work in a place where things are meant to be stored and uh, not used. Thank you. Uh, my name's TJ Peters. If you want to know more about me, you can visit my website, TJ Peters Online. I'm also on the Twitter, at T Peters. And uh, yeah, that's good enough. Thank you. Happy writing. First a Woman, Then a Man, by Justin Fennick. The hut was well lit, and its open doors overlooked the square of the town. The square was full of men, sat on hot stone walls smoking, talking, and laughing about something that didn't exist. Dogs were walking around their feet, hoping for scraps, as if they were still wolves, dire and inhospitable. In the distance you could see the palm trees of the one hotel in the town. Yankees with backpacks liked to stop over there on their way to God knows where. They never stayed long. Iandra and her mother were eating pica pollo on a small plastic table. Iandra was sat on the floor, and her mother leaned over the edge of the bed. It was a large portion, though it had very little chicken. The Tostonis dominated everything, taste, sight, and dreams. Iandra's father was off today, but he was still out, diving for fresh catch to sell to the hotel for something on the side. Iamdra imagined him swimming, his face smiling underwater. Can faces smile underwater? The thought made her happy, made her think a lot of things. But she wished he was home more, not always working for the hotel and the white men that reside in it like kings squatting in a palace not their own. 
She wondered if her father was really working for his family or for the whites. Everyone liked the Yankees because they brought money, and when people had money, Iamdra noticed, they had fun. But we have fun without money, don't we? she thought. Iamdra, stop daydreaming and eat before it gets cold and you have to throw it away, her mother shouted with her hand cutting the air. You can only cook chicken once, she said in a whispered afterthought, shaking her head. Iandra, the seven-year-old, continued eating. But she was interrupted again when a football rolled in from the open door of the hut and came up to her bare feet. Iandra imagined it was a cockroach, or a rat, or one of the chickens that sometimes strays from Jose's farm. Those are the only things that usually crept into their hut. She thought now of Jose's chickens when he cuts off their heads, how they run around squirting blood everywhere, like a volcano or a squid. She thought of the blood the seven-year-old, and laughed and smiled. But the ball didn't startle her like a rat would. When it touched her feet, she was compelled to touch it back. Two dark boys she had never seen before stood outside the hut, fearfully looking in, waiting for their ball back. Iamdra got up and put her foot on the ball. She passed it to them, using the inside of her foot, just as you should, though no one had ever taught her. The boys took the ball, gave her an approving smile, muttered gracias, and went away. Iandra sat back down and continued eating before her mother shouted at her again. When they both finished eating, her mother was washing the dishes in the sink next to the back door of the hut, through which you could only see overgrown foliage. Iandra sat on the foot of the bed, waiting for her mother to finish the dishes so they could have their siesta. By the time they woke up, her father would be home again, and then it would be time to eat again, but this time, Iandra wasn't keen on going to bed. She asked her mother, Mama, can I have a football? Her mother's back suddenly stiffened, and she sighed a deathly sigh full of unwanted realizations as she spoke. Not now, Iandra. Can I go play with those boys? Iandra could see her mother shaking her head. She spoke like a priest who has just heard a murderous confession he knew he could never tell a soul only force its sin unto his. Priests in such places are like the picture of Dorian Gray. Sinners remain young and full of vitality, whilst priests age and wither with the corruption of their imparted sin. Go, Iamdra. Gracias, Mama. She ran out into the street, into the plaza where the boys were playing. There were four of them. They were tall, maybe thirteen, and already with a six-pack, though their arms and faces looked gaunt and malnourished. They played shirtless and with dusty trainers. As a goalpost, they used trees, and they were playing two against two. Neither of them were smiling or making jokes or picking on each other, as Yamdra always imagined the boys did. They looked serious, focused. She recognized the expressions on their faces from church. Did those boys treat football like adults treat church? She giggled to herself, excited. She watched them, their fancy feet, their botched tricks, listened to them shouting orders to their teammate, crying foul when they were stomped on or blocked off. No one ever scored, and they were getting wound up. Yandra waited and waited. She wanted to join them, but how to ask them? She was shy, and she didn't know where to start. She watched them closely, as did some men lying around the square, drinking and smoking and she hoped that if she watched them long enough, they would notice her, pity her, 
and ask her to join. An hour went by, and they hadn't even noticed her. She looked at herself, at her blue dress, her braided hair, and dusty feet, and imagined what the boys saw when they looked at her. Nothing. She's just a girl, a seven-year-old. She was no more noticeable than a cat or a tree in the background. That's all she was, a minute figure in the background. She sighed the way her mother often did, and went back inside. You finished playing? Her mother asked her, reclining on the bed between the two doors of the hut which generated a hint of a breeze. She had her hands on her belly and her legs together as if she had been prepared for a Viking burial. Yamda climbed into the bed and turned on her side, giving her mother her back. She felt like crying, but then she looked at the bare floor where the football had rolled in earlier and felt disparagingly encouraged. Mama, I want a football. Her mother sighed again, only this time, being on her back, it was amplified in its moribund echo. It was as if the dead were sighing. Not yet, Iamdra. Iamdra noticed the finality in her mother's voice, and she felt tears welling up, and a foreign anger constrict her chest. It was as if a snake inside her body had bitten her, and was spreading an enraging venom into her heart and liver. Not yet, not yet, everything not yet. We've already talked about this, Iamdra. Her mother spoke without anger. Iamdra picked up grief in her voice, the way people talk at a funeral. When you're twelve, I'll get you a football. But I want a football now. I'm sorry, Iamdra. Why wasn't her mother shouting at her? Iamdra was shouting, being rude and demanding, to her mother no less. But she replied calmly and sadly. Were her demands making her mother sad instead of angry? Why? I can't go fishing with Papa. I can't wear shorts or have a dog or play football with the boys, but I want my own football. Then the boys will have to ask me for permission to play, she said as though she were revealing something diabolical, which only she could have thought of. Her mother admired her pride, but still. Not until you're twelve, Iamdra. Why twelve? What will happen when I'm twelve? You'll become a... What are you two still doing up? Iamdra's father walked into the hut with a big, wide smile on his prince-charming face. Papa, you're early! Iamdra got off the bed and ran to hug him. He picked her up and lifted her onto his shoulders. His hands felt salty from the sea. I made a good catch. I got bags and bags full of yummy seafood. You sold it to the hotel? That's right. Her father took hold of her hands as she balanced on his shoulders and he began telling her and her mother about his day, about the tides, about the sea urchins, the mussels, the fish with names she couldn't pronounce, how after he went to the hotel, he went to Juan's bar and paid for a round of drinks for everyone and danced the bachata with Juan's old wife. Her father sounded so happy when he spoke, so full of adventure, so confident, as if the best things in the world were supposed to happen to him, and he enjoyed them as a man should enjoy them, gratefully and as best he can. Then her mother began to ask him about tomorrow, the cooking, the clothes, and Iamda zoned out the way a child does, thinking only to herself, when I grow up, I want to be just like Papa. But not yet, she thought mockingly. Not until you're twelve. Thanks for listening to the No Extra Words podcast. For more information on today's stories and contributors, or to learn how to submit your own work, please visit us at noextrawords.wordpress.com. 
The best support you can give the show is to recommend us to your family and friends. See you next time.